0: Welcome to the Story Discovery Podcast. I'm your co-host, J.W. McAteer. Coming up, you'll hear a new story from our free online publication, Etched Onyx. Please join me and co-host Melissa Collings after the reading when we talk with the author about their work and all things writing and otherwise. The Story Discovery Podcast is sponsored by Scrivener, the go-to app for writers of all kinds, used every day, by best-selling novelists, screenwriters, non-fiction writers, and more. Think of Scrivener as the Swiss army knife of writing apps. You can use just the parts you need, like the distraction-free writing view, or you can break out all the tools to plan, organize, research, and create your work. When you're done, you can easily export to multiple document, manuscript, and ebook formats. Our listeners get a 20% discount by using the coupon code Story Discovery at checkout. You can learn more at their website, literatureandlatte.com, or just type Scrivener into your search engine. Give Scrivener a try. You won't regret it. This podcast and all related materials are a production of Onyx Publications. All stories are copyright 2021. All rights reserved. Today's story is The King of Weeds. Written by John Eric Vana, and narrated by Melissa Collings. Settle in and
1: enjoy. The King of Weeds by John Eric Vana. Debbie, Mrs. DeBrosi as her students called her, died when she stepped on a shovel while gardening. That's right, a shovel. It had been left in the yard with the spade facing up. And when she stepped on it, the handle flew up and hit her in the head like a Charlie Chaplin movie. She died from that. I wish I was kidding. The impact left little more than a bruise on her forehead, and I can just imagine her laughing it off. That laugh I heard in countless faculty meetings, but it caused some sort of blood clot that worked its way to her brain. A few weeks later, she was dead, and I was taking another day off from work putting in for another substitute to go to another funeral. Early in my career, Debbie took me under her wing and pulled back the curtain on how to really engage students. She told me to let the kids grow. Wild as weeds, she'd always say with a smile on her face. She talked with passion about the cosmos, took her classes into the hallway to race paper airplanes, taught them to build spring-driven cars. Her physics classes were always in motion. Her students gathered around her like iron filings around a magnet. When she died, just like everyone else, the crisis team came to coach the teenagers through loss. The marching band dedicated their halftime performance to her memory. But what did she have to show in the end? Sure, she had a loving husband, kids, even a grandchild. But what about her work? What about her students, wild as weeds? In four years' time, no students would be left who remembered her. The lawnmower sputtered and growled, the roar of its engine fading to a staccato lurch. I pushed up on the handle, lifting its front wheels, and it returned to roaring, the blade whizzing free in the open air. I pushed forward and then lowered it again onto the knee-high grass that had gone to seed and felt it jerk and protest under my white knuckles, the blade flagging against the renewed resistance. I pushed down again, but too late. With one last spasm and a fart of exhaust, the engine died and the blade stopped. Damn it! I let the front wheels drop, their cushioned fall onto the overgrown lawn unsatisfying. I wanted a crash and a bang. I had managed to cut a nine-foot path along the chain-link fence that ran behind my property. My father, a proud member of the middle class who had worked his way out of poverty and into the American dream, the suburbs had always kept a presentable lawn. And it was about that presentation, about keeping up appearances. He'd tell me that he did it for my mom because she deserved a beautiful home but she'd turn around and tell me how little she cared. The son of immigrants and rednecks, he was trying to prove that he belonged. Though later, I suspected he did it out of habit, going through the suburban motions. The problem with going through the motions is that you forget why you're doing something in the first place. You do it without luster. So, for most of the spring semester, I'd ignored the backyard. I cut the front to keep the HOA at bay, though you could see the back from the side street. Occasionally, they sent enforcement letters about it. But the end of the school year had been rough, and the most recent letters cited the unmown front lawn. They were all thanks to the retiree across the street, Bill. He's with the association. The one or two times I talked to him, he told me all about how he liked to photograph birds. Bull. That just gave him an excuse to ride around in a golf cart, with a telescopic lens, taking pictures of people's overgrown lawns or moldy siding. I should have started in the front yard, like I always did, but I knew that if I mowed it first, there was the danger that I'd quit halfway, leaving the back again. It was the first day of summer, and I woke up at the same time I would have during the school year, determined to stay productive. But it would begin by tackling the yard. I yanked the cord on the mower and it coughed and jerked, I pulled it again and again, sweat accumulating in the pits of my shirt, on the small of my back. I cussed. I gave the mower's cord one last rip with all my middle-aged strength. The rubber grip came loose in my sweaty palm and whipped against my other hand, holding the mower still. I swore and stormed inside. The first day of no school already felt like a bust. I imagine in other professions the quickness and meaningless of it must be more troubling. One day they're at work, and the next they're not. Maybe your boss calls everyone around the water cooler and delivers the news. Then the hunt is on for their replacement, but not in teaching. One day they're in the hallway, in their classroom, and the next the news is spreading like word of a fight in the cafeteria. The principal tells everyone over the intercom, and leads a moment of silence. Then the crisis team comes, and the morning show does a tribute video, and there's a candlelight vigil where the chorus sings, and some parents set up a scholarship fund. It goes on and on. It happened too often. At Debbie's funeral, as I sat there in the rigid pews with their office stock brand tissue boxes stuffed in between Bibles and books of common prayer... I felt a little heat of anger to think of my kids switching seats to take advantage of my substitute and groaning over the bookwork I'd left them yet again. They knew it was busy work, and as much as I hated it, as much as I'd cried against it when I was a younger man, what else was there to do? It was the second time that year. First, there was Mr. Woodcock, who died of a heart attack, at 45 years old. And during the summer... Before school even started, Miss Cruz, the young, well, younger than me, horticulture teacher died of some untreated infection from a cut she got while working. The year before that, old Mrs. Banks, who only ever showed movies and we all wished would just retire and stop dragging down the reading department's test scores, literally died at her desk. That old joke we tell students about sleeping in our rooms at night, and staying in our job until we die at the front of the classroom? She lived it. The kids were watching Stand and Deliver, and she set and departed. Sometimes, I'd imagine they weren't dead. They're just off somewhere else with a new job and a new life, like my kids and my ex-wife or every other teacher who runs the gauntlet and makes it out alive with the retirement party in the media center. Sometimes, I'd just flat-out forget— I'd walk by Mrs. Banks' room and peer in to see what movie is on today. I'd think i see Woodcock walking down the hall through a crowd of students. But then Mr. A shot himself. And just two years later, Coach Zewelski overdosed on pain meds. And six months later, Mrs. Stevens turned the car on in her garage and went to sleep. And each time I'm reminded of how many we've lost and it's like losing Debbie all over again. Does this happen in other professions? We aren't soldiers. Surely, surely everyone dies. Tax accountants, janitors, restaurant managers, car salesmen, bank clerks, interior designers, machinists. Or is it just because this is my job, and these are my colleagues, And repeatedly, I'm face-to-face with a parade of death. A parade moving on a circuit too short? Every year we lose more and more teachers against an endless stream of students. Eventually, I too will die with nothing to show for it at all, but a few pews filled with co-teachers staring at their cheap khaki pants in an outdated funeral home. It was one of those things you didn't expect to see in broad daylight. A kid jumping a fence. After the initial double take, I did another. It was Jeremy Adwell. I taught him in the previous year. I hate being the hallway cop at school. I don't need to be the sidewalk cop at home. But Jeremy had been more than the usual trouble this year. One reason I tried not to teach freshmen. But they needed me to pick up a section of civics. I'd been on the main road that twists through the labyrinth of suburbs, connecting one subdivision to another, and Jeremy had jumped the masonry wall that ran behind a row of houses. His buddies were on the other side, two other kids about the same age, late middle school, early high school, sitting on bikes. As I looped around, I pulled onto the grass and directed my two-door toward them. Jeremy was just mounting one of his friend's handlebars when they heard my car crunching through the grass. I leaned out the window and shouted, Is that your house or should I call the police? Jeremy said something to his buddies and they started to pedal away, not toward the street but toward the trees where the wall ended. A narrow alleyway of overgrown grass and wild bushes and saplings pushing their way up between the white fence of one subdivision and the stone wall of the next. "'Hey!' I shouted, "'because that's what you do. "'What else can you do?' "'A kid walking down the hallway pulls some shit "'and doesn't stop when you ask him to, but the bell rings. "'You have a class to attend to. "'I wasn't about to leave my car there and run after them.' "'He threw a middle finger up over his shoulder "'as they vanished down the green corridor. "'I shrugged it off. "'It's June,' I thought. "'Let them run wild.' Some things are better left alone. I drove home to a driveway that was just beginning to feel the squeeze of the front lawn's newfound freedom, the encroaching arms of crabgrass and chickweed. I found another letter from the HOA in my mailbox. Unsightly and unmaintained. Overgrown. Violation of community standards. I tore it up and inspected some dandelions booming between angry bursts of what I think is called thistle. It was strangely satisfying to watch the grass in front suddenly take to neglect, to watch it stretch and lengthen in tidy blades, new to this unruliness. In the days that followed the death of my lawnmower, huge fans of grass leapt up and spread outward. They must have been a different breed, a different strain. But I didn't know the types of grass. And towering weeds jumped up overnight, it seemed dangling their little flowers my favorite teacher in high school was mr fisher mr fisher taught world history and the philosophy elective he taught through stories and anecdotes tales of his own misadventures mixed with history and mythology regaling us with stories of his ex-wife whom he seemed still to love and of dorm room pranks dropped between the legends of king arthur and the Buddha's weeping origins. He earned himself the nickname Jesus among the students for his style of teaching through parable, something that as a teacher I often wonder how he got away with, how it really worked. I have no luck with lectures myself. Was it only a few of us listening raptly while the rest of the class dozed? But there was a dark side there too, the disappointment when he spoke of his own children. The jokes about spending summers drunk in a bathtub. As a student, we thought it was all an act. I didn't learn that the other teachers called him Drunken Jesus behind his back until after he drank himself to death. That at the end, he would call into work from a bar to ask for a substitute. I learned this at his funeral. He taught for 40 plus years and was beloved by all. It never occurred to me that he would get the same cheap memorial service the others had. I went prepared to fight a crowd of former and current students. I imagined laughter and crying and anecdotes shared in an enormous reception hall. Instead, I was greeted by a few of his kids asking how I was related. When they learned I'd been a student, their faces wilted. They hadn't wanted that part of his life there. His students had gotten the best of him while his own children got whatever was left over. They were doing donuts on their bike, drifting around between my house and the stop sign four houses down, just circling and laughing. It was the middle of the day and the middle of June. I was standing in my boxer shorts and an old t-shirt, drinking my morning black coffee out of my favorite mug which read, Tears of My Students. I was bored in watching the grass grow, the weeds racing toward the sky with their jagged leaves and monolithic flowers. I could make out the beginnings of at least one new tree, and a few vines crawled about. Jeremy unstraddled his bike, letting it fall to the cement, and started to fish something out of his drawstring backpack. I didn't realize it was a lighter and fireworks until a fuse was lit and he tossed one into the storm drain the resulting sound like a burst of gunfire. I whipped down the stairs and out the door and stood shouting on my front lawn. But mine wasn't the only voice. Bill had emerged from his house at the same moment. The look of disgust he reserved for neighbors' yards was turned on my boxer shorts, my pale, balding legs, my patina-stained mug. Lord knows what my actual hair looked like. I hadn't bothered with a mirror that morning, or the previous two. And there he was, standing on his well-manicured grass in a pair of loafers, khaki safari shorts, and a tucked-in collared shirt, looking like a fucking cruise ship entertainment director. Jeremy and his friends escaped while Bill and I sized each other up. I never got to ask Mr. Fisher about the time he gave me a ride home. I'd ridden my bike over to my then-girlfriend's house, but instead of her sneaking out to walk around the block with me and make out in front of our favorite spot, a fence consumed by untended jasmine, she'd stepped out through the front door and under a yellow light bulb besieged by moths, told me to go home. Not looking where I was going, I must have hit a nail or a bit of glass in the road, because as I sobbed and pedaled, suddenly a bump and then my back tire was flat. It was a long way to ride, but I didn't mind the trip if it meant a chance to put my hands in her hair. That night, my fingers gripped hard rubber as I made the even longer walk home. But halfway home, passing the school and feeling sorry for myself like only a love-shunned 16-year-old with a flat tire could, a little tan sedan pulled into the shoulder, and there was Mr. Fisher, leaning across the passenger seat, asking if I needed a ride home. He must have been leaving school after some event. He was at every basketball, football, volleyball, you name it, ball, game. His students were his life. I never got a chance to ask him if he remembered what he said to me, if he even recalled it at all. How many kids did he give rides home to over the years? How many broken teenage hearts did he mend with some folksy wisdom? As my thirties ended with nearly two decades of teaching under my belt, the old gods that had led me to be a teacher faded away. The years went on and the students rolled by, and teaching proved to be less of what I would thought it would be. Never did I inspire a class with a great speech as Fisher had. Never did my students ride the roller coasters of equations like they did in Debbie's room. There were fewer and fewer moments where I even connected with a kid, much less impacted them. I started teaching by the rules, started photocopying worksheets, started enforcing the dress code. I started going through the motions. Sometimes I wish that car would pull up again and take me back to where I'd started. Bill brought me the next letter himself. He knocked on the door and... When I opened it, thrust it out at me so quickly I caught the paper as a reflex, thinking he was about to punch me. I didn't need to read it to know what it was, and I looked him dead in his wrinkled old face and said, Did you run out of postage? Did you run out of gas for your mower? No, was all I managed to say, surprised that I'd fired off the first quip so smoothly, instead of thinking what to say hours later but I hadn't been ready for Bill to strike back like that. He'd clearly ramped up for the encounter. He had on his button-up short sleeve shirt with the HOA logo on the chest pocket. I can see it in your backyard from Oak Bluff. It looks like you finally decided it was time to mow your lawn and then just gave up. I've seen you ripping up mail as you walk in your house. Well, there's one you can rip up too if you want, but I'll tell you to your faith that we have standards here in the community. Some of us live here and pay our dues so that those standards can be kept up. To my surprise, it was very much a form letter. I was really hoping to hear Bill's voice, dripping with discontent and ire over the eyesore I'd grown for him. The letter included a list of things that were not permitted in the front yard, such as lawn ornaments, vegetable plants, and furniture not on a front patio or porch space. There were other things on the list, but these offended me the most as being the most unreasonable. While I'd never go as far as to replace my lawn with rocks or astroturf, I did muse on the idea of cutting some sort of crop circle into my grass, though I'd have to resurrect the mower. Instead, I went to the store, came back, and waited for Bill to be in his front yard. With as much drama as I could muster, I opened my garage door and walked out with my weed whacker and shovel. I cleared a space while he tried to pretend he wasn't watching. Then I deposited in the dirt a tomato plant, complete with trellis, and adorned it with a pink flamingo on a stick and a garden gnome. The whole thing took less than ten minutes. I pulled onto the shoulder and rolled down the window, leaning across the passenger seat and doing my best Mr. Fisher impression. It was Jeremy, strolling bikeless through the late July heat, his backpack probably holding fireworks and spray paint cans. "'Jump over any fences lately?' "'Have you gone child molester or something?' He kept walking, and I let the car idly drift along beside him. "'If it was your house, fine.' I was just checking to make sure I wasn't witnessing a robbery. You caught me. Call the police. Why would a child molester call the police? He looked over at me with a flash of fear and shock before he laughed awkwardly and shook his head. So, what's in the backpack? Eggs? Spray paint? Rolls of toilet paper? Are you going to talk me out of my rotten ways again? I was going to suggest a target. The guy across the street is giving me hell about my lawn. You want me to egg your neighbor? I was kidding. Sure, he said, turning to walk the other way. By the 4th of July, the wanton sprawl of grass had swallowed the gnome and flamingo whole. It seemed like justice. From my window, it used to be suburbs as far as I could see. Shingle roofs blotting out creation. Now my time by the upstairs front window transformed from vigil to vacation. From exile to exploration. Every day I sat up there drinking coffee and watching the black seed heads of the grass, the white tufts of dandelion, the little flowers of quickweed drifting in the breeze. I imagined my weeds spreading, taking over lawn after lawn as they connected with the strip of wilderness between the subdivisions. Nothing pissed Bill off more than the sunflowers that had popped up in the middle of my front yard out of nowhere. I figured some passerby had tossed a few seeds from the sidewalk, or maybe a bird had dropped them. Whatever. They were bright and defiant and six fucking feet tall and staring right at his house. Three of them. I was watching them wave around on the 6th of July when a riding lawnmower that had been prowling the neighborhood making the rounds to each paying house, pulled into my driveway and cut a swath of the grass between the sidewalk and the road. By the time I got into the driveway, waving my arms, he'd finished that little stretch and taken a chunk of the main lawn. He cut his engine. Wrong house, buddy! The guy sighed beneath his wide-brimmed sun hat, then looked across the street as though for help. How much did he give you? Forty dollars, he said. I told him I didn't normally do this sort of thing. I don't want trouble. Hold on, I said, jogging inside and returning with my wallet. Here's 50. Beat it. The guy gaped back at me, and it was in those bewildered blue eyes that I recognized him, a student from a decade ago. And when I called him by name, he recognized me back. Weren't you salutatorian? Law school didn't suit me. That's not why I asked. (laughs) I get that a lot, though. He laughed. You know, philosophy was the only elective I ever took. I was too busy collecting AP credit. I was so busy studying my way through college, I almost missed that whole experience, too. And then, just as I was about to go to law school, my old boss from when I cut lawns one summer offered to sell me his business. Just a trailer and some lawn equipment. But boy, it pissed my dad off pisses my dad off. As long as you're happy. I knew you'd say that, he said. I can't say I remember many of your lessons, but I always got that from you. It's pretty wild how you can get something so meaningful on accident. He gave me back my money and left my lawn alone. It was early August and Bill stood in his driveway shaking his head. A school bus rolled past my lawn, It had recovered from its lawnmower wounds, weeds beginning to become bushes reaching heights taller than me, hiding my house from the street. In the backyard, my lawnmower was lost. I stalked behind windows grown green, leaving the house only to drive through the neighborhood, slowing to nearly a stop to gaze at the untamed corridor that had occupied that no-man's land between one subdivision and the next. I imagined virgin tracks of wilderness back there. Loose fence boards that yielded passage to others' sanctum backyards. Neverland forts of lost boys. Plants unplanned and uncut. Bill stalked across, intent on knocking at my door, but paused, unable to find the path to my front porch. He looked up at the window where I watched and shouted something up at me before stomping back home. Just a few months before, during the the end-of-the-year annual Greek tragedy that was yearbook signing, as seniors faced for the first time their own mortality and age while the underclassmen just as desperately tried to write something, anything of meaning in a pseudo-friend's yearbook that might make sense of the last ten months, that might make it matter, I started to look around at my fellow teachers, wondering who would be the next to go. I took stairs carefully and privately hoped it was the girl's soccer coach. Danielle, in my fifth period, an over-made-up freshman who I'd occasionally had conversations with about the obviousness of her marijuana perfume, came to me right before exams and told me that Jeremy had weed in his backpack. Pot brownies, she whispered, the same way she once told me she had to go to the restroom to change her tampon. Really? I've been clean for a while now, she insisted. And if he wants to do that stuff, it's fine with me, but he said he was going to eat a few in the bathroom during lunch, and I just don't want him to get in trouble. What if he gets arrested? She seemed earnest enough, so in I flew. To the rescue. I pulled him into the hallway and led him to the deserted stairwell, and told him that I didn't care at all if he smoked weed, or ate weed, or whatever. Not at school, I said, and he met my eyes. Here was a teacher not demonizing him, not telling him he was going to go to jail and ruin his life, not turning him in, giving it to him straight. It felt like going back to the way I'd been. It felt like life, like teaching. I don't care if you smoke weed. I've smoked weed. Who gives a shit? But don't do it at school. Do it at home. If it's not safe there because of your parents, do it somewhere else. Or wait until you're out of the house. But bringing stuff to school is about the dumbest thing you could do. Get rid of it. He promised me he would. He looked me in my eyes and thanked me. I returned to my day, energized. I spoke to my students. Tried to engage with them, instead of just eyeing the obese dropout specialist and trying to triangulate the old calculus teacher's age. But when the epidemic came later that day, the disaster I'd sensed lying in the grass like an upturned shovel, my fellow teachers were not its victims. Hordes of freshmen, sick but strangely so. Some vomiting, some just lying on the cafeteria floor, babbling. They thought they were dying, the principal told me after school. I sat on the other side of her desk, It's wood like a church pew. The only thing on it were a few papers and a cheap box of tissues. She told me they'd all eaten brownies, not knowing what kind of brownies they were. The culprit had been caught and was facing expulsion. Well, he got rid of it. The principal shook her head. I slouched in the chair, thinking about how death comes for us all. In my boxer shorts, with my coffee the heat of summer drooping into late August, I surveyed my kingdom. One corner of my backyard had ballooned with weeds that turned into full-on shrubs, spreading long, sparsely-leafed arms up and over the rising lawn, a swelling tide that rose so high it seemed my whole plot was lifting from the earth. A half-dozen oak trees waved their gloved hands above the bending flags of grass blades, dark-stemmed and dark-leaved, A patch of land had been overtaken by yearning arms that yielded purple stars for flowers. My best guess from the internet searches was that they were Mexican petunias, and running like the Milky Way through all this, a vine that seemed bent on wrapping around every stalk, every blade, every flower, and pulling them back down. The front yard was a near-mirror, though somewhere down in there a garden gnome and flamingo guarded a tomato cage. The actual plant had been choked out long ago by a parade of ferns. The wilderness ran up the walls of the house in sticky ramblers, crept inside on six or eight or more legs at a time, traversing territory once unknown to their kind. The smell of green filled my nostrils day and night, slipped in through the air conditioner, permeated the eaves, and for the first time in a long time, I felt like death was not my destiny. After coffee, I soaked up water like root systems, until it was time to sleep with the windows open, sweating dewdrops beneath the stars. What I looked like at the grocery store, I don't know. I don't really, truly remember going, though I must have. I had more than one carton of eggs when I came to in front of Jeremy's house, to the sound of his father screaming. "'What the fuck, you asshole?' I threw an egg at him. It missed, but hit the front window. "'I'm calling the police!' Jeremy appeared behind him, following the trail of eggshells up the wall to the dripping yolks. "'You,' he must have said. I couldn't really hear him. Father turned on son. "'You know him? You know an old man who eggs someone's house? What did you do? Egg his house first? No, dad, Jeremy yelled. That's the teacher who told me it was okay to do drugs, just not at school. That's the guy who told me to get rid of it. The father turned on me, rushing down the driveway. I'm glad they fired you, Jeremy yelled after me as I ran. If the police came for me that night, I didn't know. I wasn't home. I walked and walked the endless lines of sidewalk passing like film reel, a dead man careening through the dead of night. Maybe I slept somewhere out in the suburbs, dreaming that I stood at the wilderness of weeds, that narrow alley between one development and the next. Or maybe I really went there and gazed into its darkness untouched by street lamps, its path unknown, uncontrolled. "'something untamed between neat, fragile little lives. "'I staggered home in the bright of morning. "'For the first time in a long time, "'I could see my house's gray exterior, "'as bare as the day I bought it. "'The weeds were gone, ripped away. "'A many bulldozer squatted in the fresh black dirt, "'and beside it on the street, "'a flatbed heavy with fresh sod. "'The invoice is in your mailbox.' Bill called triumphantly from across the street. Your backyard is next. I felt suddenly present. Not the feeling of time slipping by. Of a life that had gotten away from me while I watched others end. Not the eerie feeling of a school year begun that I wouldn't be a part of. Bill's next words were choked out as he got a better look at me. Whatever I was then, outwardly. I only knew that inward, I was dead and thus free. I ran through the dirt, past the staring landscapers, around the house and into the backyard, tossing open the gate, spreading my arms and falling into the weeds, taller than me, greater than me, a kingdom come of wild open arms, every shade of green, and swallowing me whole.
0: You've just listened to The King of Weeds by John Eric Vaughna, and we have him on the show today. Thanks for joining us on the show, Eric. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And of course, we have the wonderful co-host, Melissa Collings. Melissa, good morning, or good afternoon, goodness.
1: Good morning, good afternoon, whenever you are listening to this, hello.
0: Great. All right, Eric, well, one of the first things that we do when we kick off these shows is have you tell us a little bit about yourself. So Go.
2: All right, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you all about me right now. I, uh, uh, I'm a high school English teacher. Uh, I live in Tampa, Florida. I've taught uh, high school English and creative writing for 10 or 11 year, 12 years, something like that. And I'm the father of uh, three, three daughters and, and two stepkids. And just I try to find time to write between the very loud classroom and the very loud house. Yeah,
0: I'll bet. I'll bet. Great. Well, um, we also like to kind of kick into the story a little bit. So Sure. I read in some of the background information that you sent us that this was sort of a combination of two stories. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah. I, you know, I, um, I often come up with my titles first. I don't know if that's an effective way to write, uh, but (laughs) it it happens. I sort of get this this central idea that I want to mess with. And many, many years ago before I was teaching, I, I was mowing lawns for the YMCA uh, over the summer and uh, I had, parked the, the mower at the back of the property to eat my, my sandwich and uh, read Don DeLillo. And I don't know why I remember that or if it's an important idea at all, but I remember, <laughs> I remember that I was reading White Noise uh, as, as a pretentious undergrad uh, and <laughs> just on my own. <laughs> yeah. uh, I also read a bunch of Cornel West that summer, uh, anyway. I, um, I I was sitting there, and I, I was looking through the chain link fence at the back of the property that nobody would ever come back to except me, and there was this house that butted up against the back of the property, and there, there were a bunch of houses, but there was one, and its lawn was completely overgrown, but there was a lawnmower that appeared to have died in the middle of it, um, and it sat there all summer long, just this, the lawn getting taller around it, and the, 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 the trail that the lawnmower had first cut slowly disappearing and i don't know i just really wanted to write a story about who who did that who started and then said fuck it for whatever reason (laughs) right uh so i i just had this this inspiration for the title the the king of weeds and over the course of several years it was something i kept coming back to and just trying to write a story and it 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 was not happening but it was one of those ideas that i I kept recycling i kept returning to and, and just trying to make it work until I think it was over the summer, a couple summers ago, I was trying to write about the toll that being a teacher seems to have on on people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was just this very dark, brooding like thing that was like, I mean, I don't know, I was probably drinking, and it was just sad. <laughs> and it... <laughs> Um, I was, I really wanted it to be fiction. I didn't, and I kept yeah. kind of slipping into some details that were like too real <laughs> <Some> and <non-fiction. laughs> right. And I right. was like, oh, change the name. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, at some point in, in trying to make something out of it, I was like, I, I think I had written the part where, uh, in some early version of, of the teacher seeing the, the kid jump over the, the, the wall. Yeah. Mm-hmm which is one of those like little nuggets of true things in my story where not that it was my kid or anything, but I was, I was driving along one day and just saw this kid hop over this huge uh, stone wall uh, (laughs) from one neighborhood to the other. And I was like, what the hell just happened? Um, And then, so that worked its way in there. And then I, then it became outside and, and, and then I was like, oh, this is this guy who's struggling with all my main character who's struggling with all this stuff. It's, that's just building up and he's the king of weeds. And then I I resurrected, I pulled things together and started just smashing stuff and and made a (laughs) completely nonsensical first draft that, uh, as as you do. And then I just kept (laughs) working on it. Yeah, Yeah. right, right. Mm -hmm. It all
1: starts. Yeah. (laughs) I love how that came together because it came together in such a great piece. It's so intriguing, and it's funny, and it's dark, too. I love funny and dark. Yeah, I do, too. One of my favorite websites is (laughs) (laughs) despair.com. They're demotivational posters. You need to check it out. Demotivational Demotivational posters. posters. Yes, it is. I'm a very happy person, but I love my demotivation. You
2: love a demotivational
1: poster? I do. I have one, but I have one (laughs) setting. I actually ordered one because I love my demotivational poster. What does it say? Okay, I'll read it. So <laughs> it, it says loneliness. It's a tree. It's a picture. I love it already. Yeah, you can't <laughs> Want see it. What to describe it? Oh yeah, there. Yeah, there it is. Loneliness. Okay. So we've got you're... an
2: image. It, it looks like it's straight out of AMC's The Terror, right? They're on the, the tundra, <laughs> and uh, there's a figure. in is that a tree? It's a
1: soul tree, a soul tree in the background, and the big word says loneliness. If you find yourself struggling with loneliness, you're not alone, and yet you are alone so very alone. <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's fantastic. I know, oh, uh, it's terrible. I love that. <laughs> um, some teacher, uh, I don't know, retired or, or died or got arrested. And um, we, uh, we inherited all of the uh, their motivational posters. And this was like, this must have been a really old teacher because they had all the classic, like from the 80s and 90s posters that you remember seeing when you were in high school. So I, I took them and put them all over the faculty men's room,
0: Excellent. so that so
2: that you could have that like you you can do it whenever <laughs> you know you were yeah
1: you're having a bad day you walk into the bathroom you are leaving a new person I just really
2: wanted to uh, in, encourage my, my my fellow teachers that they they could get that bowel movement out <laughs>
1: oh my goodness. <laughs>
2: Too low is new that
1: territory. Is that yeah. too low brow? <laughs> I
2: don't
0: know. I might need to change the rating on the show or something.
2: <laughs> Wait, was I not supposed to swear? I
0: think there's no, cursing no, in the store. Okay. No, it's swearing's say, okay. swearing's okay. Just yeah, we'll, no no yeah. poop jokes. All right, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Scrap it. Start over. <laughs> That's right.
1: (laughs) Nothing's worse. I mean, it's as somebody, if you actually had the demotivational poster and they were really lonely, that's why I hesitate to read it. It's like, I truly, you know, want to be supportive if you're lonely. But that was kind of, uh, it's things like that that kind of. Yeah,
2: you really have to find the right group of people that can appreciate your humor. Humor is such a, a, it's got to get you at the right time and you got to be in the right place. And the whole, you know, nothing kills a mood faster when people just don't have that same perception of what's funny yeah, exactly mm-hmm. uh so uh, the sharing a sense of humor has just got to be one of the most important things to creating any group
1: i agree yeah that's a good point i agree because that's one of the best things to do in life is laugh
2: yeah yeah and and to ha- not have your sense of humor reciprocated right
1: yeah that that can be
2: the worst it's an immediate shutdown right Yep. Mm-hmm, and yeah. then and then you feel as lonely as that
0: tree yes <laughs> <laughs> All right, indeed. Well, let's talk about um, more of the story just a little bit more. So are there multiple elements in this story from your personal experience in, and would you say you get a lot of ideas uh, for stories from your experiences as a teacher? You know, I don't know if
2: I get a lot of ideas from being a teacher necessarily, but I think I certainly look outward. You know, you have to, you don't want to be that philosopher in the bathtub with your writing, right? You, mm. you want to be, Looking out and, and and pulling things in right and, and and drawing from your own experiences even as a fiction writer, um, because then it's real then you're drawing from your your own fears your own um, your own experiences in a way that can speak truth into your fiction so I, I don't know if teaching necessarily inspires me a lot this I think is the only story I've written about a teacher
0: interesting okay
2: I, I certainly I write lots of stories about the suburbs
1: mm-hmm. but, but you you hate the suburbs.
2: I absolutely hate the suburbs and everything <laughs> that they mean for society and culture and the environment, particularly. And yet, here I am, a 35-year-old guy who's owned three or four suburban homes. Right. <laughs> uh, it's my only option, particularly now that I have, have kids. Like, there's just, yeah, I can't go live in downtown Tampa and an apartment or. Find some cute little space over a club in Ybor. No, I here I am. <laughs> this is what. <laughs> but the 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 way that it 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 separates people. The yeah. is it who who sings that song? The is it the Monkees? The the song about. Uh, do you know what I'm talking about?
1: Not a clue. Not uh, yet.
2: <laughs> um, uh, my wife's trying to tell me. Something Sunday. Yeah. Oh. Yeah.
0: But. Ah oh, shit! Fuck it. Just cut this part out. I, don't
1: know. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Get so, her so your scene. wife is going to be girl? on the radio. Yeah. You're gonna, you're gonna be in the Tell podcast her, now. Yeah, right. Tell her to come closer. She can sing a little. bit You, more you can sing microphone. this.
2: Something about Sunday. I love it because they it it, it really captures the the complexity of um, the suburbs because you've got the beauty of like this this woman tending her rose garden and the you know there's a, a band playing in their garage down the street but then it's like here in status symbol land and it's oh. just making fun of um the, the the way that everything in the suburbs is this performative look we have the perfect house pleasant valley sunday is the name of the song Oh okay, oh, okay. not one i'm
0: familiar with no no I, I,
2: I'm not either. You'll, have to, you'll have to go listen to that that yeah, oldie. Okay. yeah
1: yeah so you could you could play that in jw I could, the, I could try to work that podcast. in at some point. That'd be kind Th- of fun. There wild. you go. I just think play I'm allowed to bit. play
0: like 10 seconds or something, maybe of, uh, without asking permission. Oh, yeah, the copyright thing. I don't know yeah. how that works. Yeah. I
1: don't either, and I should. We'll, we'll,
0: we'll play it, just blame you. <laughs> there you go. Um, yeah. Well, another interesting question, or I thought was an interesting question anyway, um, I wanted to ask you is, so we've, this is a second story written by teachers. Do you think that there's anything about being a teacher, a second story that we have published? Mm-hmm. Um, by teachers and about teachers. And do you think there's anything inherent in that experience that kind of leads to needing to vent
1: or express or maybe it's just completely unrelated? Well, it's a profession that you really have to give of yourself. You're, you're every single day giving so much of yourself uh, f- for so many different people in your in your classroom.
2: Are, are you a teacher, Melissa? I'm not. Uh, that, that's, that was a very accurate statement.
1: It has to be. I, I try to think about that because I just had a, my five-year-old just went to kindergarten. Oh. And I was just thinking about, you know, dealing with all these kids and how great this, this teacher is. Her kindergarten teacher is awesome. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, she's giving up to these kids every day.
2: So I, I don't uh, want to get too dark. Mm-hmm. Um, but I could not agree with you more. And I feel like, if anything, teaching is a creativity vacuum yeah Mm. it's going to suck up every ounce of your ability to do things and when i see see it when i the the teachers who win teacher of the year and who do all these great activities with their kids and they're they're posting about the, the, the the stuff that they do on their their facebook and their instagram or i go into their classroom and it's just like you're the best
1: teacher yeah yeah
2: i know the cost that that has yeah I know that they spend all weekend lesson planning
1: they mm-hmm. have to yeah
2: I know that they are the ones who are spending all of their their own money Yeah, mm-hmm. and one of the things that I absolutely hate about teaching is how much I know that I I could be so much better at my job if I had the time mm-hmm. to get ready and do the things I need to do yeah um, instead it's just putting out one fire after another Mm -hmm. and and I refuse to bring my work home because yeah I mean here in Florida hourly employee
0: Mm -hmm. oh interesting wow
2: yeah and I've I've got not enough time to plan not enough time to do the things I need to do and I I'm a good teacher and I can I could be amazing if I if my job would allow
1: me to be yeah Uh, wow yeah it kind of hurts me because I see that a lot out there mm-hmm. and, and talking with the previous teacher that we had, but just thinking about this, um, you know, how underpaid teachers are and how overworked, it just seems, I mean, you can see it and it makes me really sad because these are the people, the teachers, they have the little minds to shape people. They shape everyone because everyone yeah. goes through mm-hmm. that. It's such an important profession mm-hmm. and yet I don't think we give it what it deserves. And,
2: and at least for me. I don't feel that necessarily that I'm underpaid, which I might, maybe I'm the only teacher who's ever said that, but <laughs> I, I just feel like, I do feel like I'm overworked. Yeah. Uh, or, and at the same time, I I never, <laughs> um, I'm, how do I put this? I'm never, oh, I, I'm, I'm overworked, but I, I never do all the work that needs to be done. Yeah. To the, like, I, mm-hmm. it's, it's an impossible job. Mm. Yeah. That's the way I feel about my job. It's so disheartening. So I know why teachers... Are leaving in droves. Mm-hmm. And that's been the entire experience uh, over the last couple of years is just watching really good teachers leave for whatever. Yeah. Find, finding a way to pay the bills without working or, or taking a job, you know, Uber driving, doing yeah. shift or whatever. I mean, just I, teachers are, are absolutely just fleeing. And I totally get it. I totally, get it. it's who wants to come to work every day where no matter how hard you try, you haven't done a good enough job.
0: Mm, that's that's yeah, the way yeah. it feels. Yeah,
2: I know. So I,
0: depressing. I, Goodness gracious.
2: It is. Back to the, <laughs> I mean, back it's, to the poop jokes. No. <laughs>
1: Please <laughs> Let me no. bring out my poster again. I will help you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, no, <laughs> no, but seriously, it, this piece does highlight that, you it know? Does. And I think it's, I think that's some of the beauty of this piece as you're highlighting some real feelings that mm-hmm. teachers have and that are going through. And I think people need to understand that. As I mean, it's an entertaining story. You're there for it. But thank you. also, you know, to learn a lesson of that too and to be in somebody else's shoes. I think we all grow from doing that.
2: Yeah, and that's that's the beauty of, of fiction, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I just thank you for those those kind words, Melissa. But also... Like that's not what the story is about. And I think that that's, but that's why it it succeeds because there is this absolute, it's why writing science fiction is so hard because you have to do a lot of world building, right? Yeah. Hmm. But my story is set in a world we all understand, which is that being a teacher absolutely sucks.
0: (laughs) 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 Well, I guess we all understand that. I mean, you know, I think you've done a good job explaining it.
2: Well, even, even if you didn't know it, I think it's not a reality that's hard to accept. Agreed. It's not, yeah. it's, it's, you, yeah. you, you understand, I hope anyway, from just the way the story is, is, um, situated, uh, yeah. that, that, that's what's
0: going on. Yeah, sure. Cool. All right. So tell us about your writing journey and how you ended up choosing this path.
1: Yeah.
2: How I ended up being a writer. Yeah. Um, I, I wrote, started writing from a pretty young age. I mean, I, I probably have on the old hard drive here, some stories from seventh grade or something. Uh, <laughs> some short stories. I was certainly reading from a very young age and reading a lot. Uh, somewhere along the way in, in high school, I, I made a couple like little fun movies. I think the first one I did that was successful. Successful. <laughs> I did, uh, I made a, uh, I, sorry, I did air quotes. That doesn't help people on a podcast. <laughs> <No>. um, <laughs>
0: successful in air quotes. <laughs>
2: Um, well, I, I made a uh, extra credit project for my chemistry class so that I could pass. Um, that was called <laughs> Chemistry Pi, and it was um, about me and, and my friend who did not need extra credit, but he was just down to to for the adventure of uh, this script that I wrote. Which you know, I was phosphorus and he was iodine, and we were solving <laughs> chemistry crimes. Yes, um, oh, well, that's great. Driving around town in my my El Camino. Um, <laughs> So I got uh, a little uh, uh, diverted there in high school, and I, um, even though I was the editor of my school's literary magazine, um, and I was still very connected to writing and I very much loved storytelling, but I, I for a brief time, thought I was gonna go to film school. Hmm. And I, I went up to, to Florida State, and they have a great creative writing program and a great film school. So it was just sort of an easy, I didn't even apply anywhere else. I just applied to Florida State and was lazy yeah. as a 12th grader. Um, got up there, and at the orientation, I was talking to other film school kids, and all they wanted to do was talk about their cameras.
1: Hmm. Oh. And
2: I wanted to talk about stories and Ooh, movies, yeah. and they were just like, do you have Final Cut Pro version, whatever? And I was like, <laughs> what are we... Who are you? I hate you guys. Um, and I, s- I swear that my life is... <laughs> there was a moment where they were like, okay, everybody go outside and you're going to get on a bus. It's going to take you to a different part of campus and you're going to meet with an advisor. And I literally was like different bus.
1: (laughs) Not getting on that bus. Yeah. It was a,
2: it was a last second decision. And I I just hopped the bus to the English department and was like, I'm (laughs) going to be a writer. Um, and which was sort of always there. Like this wasn't, uh, but it was, there was, there was a moment in my life where I I hopped on a different bus and, um, haven't haven't looked back from that that point oh
1: that's cool oh, very good yeah. and and i s- noticed you said in your bio materials that you write every day since for over a year now you've written I do. every single day
2: yeah um i, I definitely had a, a a lag in my late 20s in how much i was writing was going through grad school I was the father of uh, twins (laughs) at at the same time. I had, I had newborn twins and I was taking two grad classes and I was teaching. Um, I don't actually have a lot of memory of that time period. I I can imagine. My (laughs) brain was completely overloaded. Uh, So I went through a lag for a long period of time that got even longer when I went through a really terrible divorce. Um, Mm. And I just got, got swallowed up in all these big life changes. And I was, I was writing, but it was this thing at the back of my mind that was, I was failing at. Cause I, it was like, when am I gonna make time this week? Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. When
2: am I gonna make time this month? Yeah. It was this thing I was I was constantly strategizing about. And then um, my new father-in-law, um, he's a musician. He teaches at the uh, University of Montana Billings. He's a trumpet player. Hmm. Whenever he comes to visit my wife and I, he brings his trumpet. He plays every every single day. He he'll go in the backyard. He'll he'll put his mute on and go in the bathroom or the garage. Um, and one day he was like about to go to bed and he was like, I haven't played my trumpet today or his, his his wife reminded him and, and he, uh, he pulls out his, his trumpet and goes, you know, like one note. He's like, I play my trumpet. <laughs> so I asked about this. He plays his trumpet every day and he has for like 30 years or something. Ridiculous. Wow, I know. And I was like,
1: that's, that's the thing I need. Yes. Yeah. That's yeah. dedication. Right.
2: And even if, he, you know, sure most days it's, he gives a half hour, an hour or more of practice time, you know, if he's going to bed and he hasn't played, he's gonna, he's gonna do a note, you know? Right. And I was like, I'm gonna do that. And I I started January 1st, 2020, probably not the best year in hindsight Mm. (laughs) to have started, but I succeeded. I'm still still going, I set a minimum that I, I will write for at least 15 minutes. Um, Perfect. oftentimes much more, but that's, that's my thing. And just the other night I started to go to bed and I was like, Oh shit, I hopped out of bed, wrote for 15 minutes. Um, I just, I don't, don't miss a day and having that, that streak going and that consistency yeah. has, it's made it so much easier to start writing again. And I and uh, it's that. it's never a challenge to to sit down because I do it every day and yeah, now it, it's so much easier to to do two or three hours sometimes because I never lost momentum on what I was working on. You know, I looked uh, at it yesterday. Yeah. 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 So that's been revolutionary. I've written so much over the last year and a half and I've got so many stories out on submission and I've got a novel going and I'm just, I feel like I'm finally doing the thing that I was supposed to be doing this whole
1: time. Oh, that's, that's great. so great. That's a good, that's a good inspiration too for everybody to hear that, you know, keeping that streak going, not just about being dedicated to it, but the streak holding you accountable.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you'll you'll find the time if you really care about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, do you, yeah. oh, go ahead.
0: No, like no. I
1: said, do you uh, always
0: write story or can you do like a journal entry? Does it vary what you write? Or? As
2: long as I write something. Yeah. words, okay. I, I, words on the page. I just, yep, words on the page.
0: Blog post or something like that even, whatever you.
2: Uh, I don't know if I, I mean, I have a blog somewhere. Well, of course blogs aren't really around anymore. <laughs> I should, but you know I should I mean. delete that <laughs> oh, yeah, somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) no uh, the other day I um uh I I wrote about like you know I journaled or something like that happens all the time we're all and writing every day gives me the freedom to do that whereas before I would get stuck in this one story I'm trying to finish and and now it's like well if I'm not inspired in that right now I'll work on it tomorrow right and, and today I'll do the thing that's in my brain, you know, I can get the yeah. idea out or whatever. Yeah. That's um, great. Yeah. It's it's been transformative.
1: Yeah. So you're writing many you what's your favorite thing to do? You, do you have a favorite? You, you're writing short stories, but you're writing a novel and you previously wrote a novel, correct?
2: I do. Yeah. I, I'm your classic English teacher, unpublished novel in the desk. Um, everybody
1: that's everybody i think every writer that yeah. first that first piece is not always the one that gets published if you're now, really really lucky maybe now,
2: i think i had a, a a grad student uh when i was in uh, creative writing undergrad who talked about how he burned his first novel very dramatically um, no. he wrote it and then set it on fire and i was like okay well you could have just saved a copy like what's the reason? Right. Right. i didn't i didn't get that that seemed very performative to me um <laughs> but yeah no i wrote it uh <laughs> in in a very weird way, I was, um, I was just out of college and I, I wasn't teaching yet. Um, and my, my dad was like, all right, when's the book coming? And I'm like, (laughs) what are you talking about? You you majored in creative writing, write a book. Um, and I was like, okay. (laughs) And then I, I did, um, (laughs) which was very strange. And I I even remember at the time being like, all right, dad, um, (laughs) who has no, um, this is not his field in any way, yeah. um, uh, but he's very go do the thing. Uh, he's, a, he's a former a retired army colonel. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. Um, so you
1: have to do the thing if he tells he was, you to do the Yeah, thing.
2: he was like, go do, go do the thing. Um, and I was like, oh, do you want me to write this book or this book? Or, and I, I think I was joking, but then he told me which book to write from my ideas based on which one he thought would make money. It's um, so
0: funny. I love it.
2: And then I, and then I did it. I, and I, I, I spent a couple of years on it and, and put it out on submission and collected, you know, whatever, 30 or 40 rejection letters. And then had an author friend look at it. And they very nicely diagnosed some problems that I was like, you know, and I'm, I'm very receptive to feedback. And I That's love good. feedback and critique groups. But Yay. they said some stuff and I was like, oh, yeah. Know, this this it's time to put this down and take this and do something <laughs> new. I see I see what happened here. This one is not gonna work. <laughs> yeah.
1: But you learned from it. It was a learning experience. Oh, absolutely. Yeah,
2: a hundred percent. Um, and it was it was science fiction and uh which I, I don't know if we'd mentioned yet. I read a lot of sci fi. I'm a big science fiction fan. And um I I ended up writing some other stories sort of set in that universe, and hmm. they've uh I haven't published any yet, but I got a few out on submission. And I, I have heard back from some editors that they really enjoy the the world building. And I'm like, well, you better. I spent like three years <laughs> making the epic novel that this is an offshoot right, of. Right. So, yeah, there's a lot of world building going on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and apparently that's just evidence. So, I don't know. I guess you got to write a novel to back up your short stories. <laughs>
1: oh,
0: That's great. You know, we haven't really talked about science fiction or fantasy on the podcast at all. Um, can you tell us about like your approach to that or anything along those? Lines? We are already at almost thirty minutes, but we can probably go like, just oh my a goodness. teeny bit longer. Oh, wow. I can't believe that. So um, yeah, just tell us a little bit about your approach to writing. You know, the science fiction novel.
2: My 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 approach to writing sci-fi has definitely been to keep it um, character-based, mm-hmm. um, and 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 focused on the the people who are in these um, uh, unreal situations. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I read a lot of sci-fi. Uh, I see the value in that. I don't read a lot of hard science fiction. Uh, I mean, I do a little bit, but I'm, I'm not as, as big a fan of your Asimov or your, your, your Greg Egan or anybody. Um, God, cut that out. What if Greg Egan listens to this? Um, I know. <laughs> yeah. my, my probably uh, not <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, uh, but, those parts
1: uh, we were talking about. We'll just cut it out later. Exactly. <laughs> um,
2: no, uh, uh you, just like any fiction, you, you've got you to read it and understand that genre. And I definitely think there's a lot of people who probably have just seen, you know, your Star Wars and Star Trek, which I, you know, I enjoy. Uh, mm. But that's not what print science fiction is. And that's yeah. not what contemporary sci-fi is. And there's so much about it, um, the sci-fi story that throws you into a world and says, yeah. figure it out. They, they, mm, yeah. they, it's real. We're going to focus on the character. We're going to focus on the drama they're having in their life and their conflict and building emotional tension, just as any good short story does. Yeah. But there's, there's an additional work for the reader of unpacking the, um, the world that the author is subtly creating. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. there's, there, there's not a lot of that stop and explain what, what the sci-fi thing is, is yeah. you're you're really old school You know, um burrows or somebody would do you know Mm -hmm. Hmm.
0: cool
2: i don't know if that was helpful at all Um. (laughs)
0: yes (laughs) that was great yeah that's interesting no i I just um we haven't like i said we haven't had a lot of science fiction or fantasy submissions as of yet so um
1: i think because of the world building it's hard to i mean these sci-fi fantasy novels are usually a lot longer than general Mm -hmm. novels so to have a short story that's a fantasy is harder i mean that Mm -hmm. take that takes a lot of work
2: yeah, and and those markets—that is such a whole like other world. Yeah, um, when it comes to the, the 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 people who read that and and the um, the just the um, the community around the, those those science fiction yeah. magazines. Um, so you know, if if I wasn't reading Asimov's and Analog and Clark's World and stuff all the time, then I I, I wouldn't know what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hmm. interesting. Contemp- I think a lot of people who've only read you know like Dune or, or uh, the, the Heinlein or whatever, uh, you know, if they read contemporary science fiction, they'd, they'd be in for a shock, uh, the, the level it's, it's gone to.
0: Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, it's its own thing now. It's not, I think it's some, back in the 50s and 60s, it was probably less respected. So nowadays, it's just like you said, it's about what happens to people and the changes they go through. And you just put them in a different environment. I mean, ultimately, that's what the way I see it. So yeah, yeah. But great. All right. Well, we are, I guess, up here on time time for our last
1: question so we love ending the show and you as a creative writing professor
2: i'm i'm just a i'm just a mister not a doctor
1: i but i, I know <laughs> when i said that i was like i wonder if he's going to say anything the fact that i just use the word professor but i'm I so sorry but i was like okay is that in my mind i was thinking is that is that reserved just for college But it then, is, is it yeah, okay, uh, okay well i guess
2: i don't know if you're a doctor there's other the point is i just don't want my (laughs) advice to be already um i don't want professor expectations
0: okay 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 All right, why don't we the, start that uh, one over
1: yes yeah, so let me start all over <laughs> so being the lowly teacher that you are yes we pathetic, won't expect too slug. much of this advice mm-hmm. so but yeah. if you've got anything to scrounge in the bottom of your bucket here <laughs> <laughs> what is your uh, best piece of writing advice that you could give for maybe aspiring authors or just curious readers
2: oh man i sh- um You know, uh, I give writing advice all week long. (laughs) It's like my job. Um, And you told me you were going to ask this, and I should have been more prepared. Um,
1: Now let's play the crickets. I know, right?
2: (laughs) Um, (laughs) I I don't know. The the greatest writing advice I ever received. You know, one thing I come back to a lot um, in... Let me, let me, can I kind of two-part this? Of course. Of course. Okay. So the, the advice that my students love that I give them is uh, like a week one thing I do where I teach them about free writing, which in college was taught to me as zero drafting. Okay. And uh, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Peter Elbow. I didn't read his work until I was in grad school uh, learning to teach writing. Um, but he was uh, a professor of NCTE and the, um, you know, he uh, runs the writing program at I think MIT or another school up there. Um, and he, he's written a bunch of books. He wrote, uh, you know, uh, writing with power and, uh, um, uh, my favorite is writing without teachers. And in that, that really, uh, short seminal book, he says, you have to write shit
0: mm-hmm.
2: and, um, I, I tell that straight out to my, my students. I'm like, yeah. y- you have to stop trying to write well. You have to not be worried uh, about your, your, your writer's block. You just just put words on paper, no yeah. matter how bad they might be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just, just write without any restraints. So I, I, I tell them to write shit and, um, kids come back to me all the time years later. And they're like, that was just the most important thing you said. And it was mm. like day, day three.
0: That's great. Yeah. Um,
2: I think for me, the greatest advice I've ever received was one time I got to see Jerry Spinelli speak. Uh, he was talking to kids. Um, and so I was, I was just like an adult in the back of the room. Um, but he was talking to these kids and somebody asked him for writing advice or, 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 or how he deals with writer's block, I think is what this like, probably like nine year old girl asked Jerry Spinelli. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he was like, you, you don't get writer's block. Mm-hmm. Do you think your teacher comes to school someday and doesn't wanna teach? Sure, but she teaches anyway. Mm-hmm, right yeah. and he um he said there are days when i don't want to write but i sit down and i write anyway
1: <laughs> yeah
2: uh and and that was just That's a good point yeah and it was as a teacher <laughs> it was the perfect metaphor yeah he just, and it's so simple he, he's like it's the same thing i've been telling everybody right just fucking right. write just do it <laughs> sit down put your ass in the seat and write um and that uh, but to hear him put it that way really, really resonated with me. So um, it, I don't believe in writer's block. You you sit down and you write. I, I believe in yeah. bad writing, but. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> that's okay. So, sometimes you got to write some bad stuff to get to the good stuff. You do. Yeah, absolutely. And absolutely. I think
1: everything you've said kind of builds to exactly that. You know, you're, you're writing, you know, the novel that you did have to put away was a learning process. And then the fact mm-hmm. that you are writing every single day, whether you want to or not. That is right. huge, and it's inspiring to me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I've been I've at a stall with writing to mm. create like a a professional website because I've been stalling on that, and I want to do an, an author newsletter. Mm. And it's just like I keep letting ex- things get in my way. So I'm going to use this you as my motivation. Oh, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna do that. <laughs> I'm gonna write every day.
2: Well, and and what I did to hold myself accountable for that is I made a little word document that. With a table in it, I probably should have done an Excel sheet, but I'm not that kind of guy. Um, <laughs> and it's it's got uh, the date and what I did and my time in and my time out. I made myself a time card for writing. Yeah, and I love that a it's, time
1: card for writing. And it's because just, it is your yeah. job, you know. It's, it is. Yeah. It is. And if, I, 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 I know, yeah,
2: I couldn't bear to see one of those rows in that table blank, you know. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Cool. The very row cool. of shame if it was there. I love
2: <laughs> it. Hadn't happened yet.
0: Great. Well, keep it up, man. Keep it up. Well, thank um, you. Well, we are, Eric, we're so happy to have you on the show today yes. and uh, have your story in our fall edition. Um, thanks so much for submitting it and giving us the opportunity to uh, have Melissa narrate it and then I'll talk with you Definitely. about it. So
2: thank you. I'm so excited to hear it and, and thanks for, for working with me on it. Um, this, is, this has been a pleasure for me.
1: Great. Oh, it's been a pleasure for us, too. Very fun. I mean, we I don't think we got to a big bunch of the questions because the side, side conversations and tangents were a whole lot of fun. That's the way it's got to be. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right.
0: Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. If so, please help us spread the word by telling your friends or giving us a rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Those reviews really make a difference. We'd like to thank the folks at Literature and Latte, the makers of Scrivener, for sponsoring the podcast and providing an amazing tool for writers. If you'd like to take your writing to the next level and use a tool designed for writers by writers, then give Scrivener a try. What have you got to lose? The Story Discovery Podcast is a free narrated podcast of the works that appear in Etched Onyx Magazine, edited by J.W. McAteer, all stories and poems are available for free at onyxpublications.com. That's O-N-Y-X publications.com. If you'd like to support the continuation of this podcast and or the magazine, please consider a small donation through Patreon at patreon.com onyxpublications. As a nano-publishing house, we are always looking for new works to showcase. If you'd like to submit a story or poem for consideration, please visit the submissions page on our website. In the meantime, keep reading and writing.